0: today, we're back in Matthew 22, um, I, I do appreciate Lawrence letting me know that uh, he was going to be using uh, Ephesians 1-7, I think it was, last week, one one verse, so I'm not that weird, okay, um, that, that made me feel quite good that he was going to come up and do that instead of, you know, coming up here and covering like four chapters or something, that would have just stop it's like when the visiting pastor lets everybody go 20 minutes early so um but we're in chapter 22 we're going to start in verse 34 and go to verse 40 um this is this is one of those passages that we talk about a lot uh at least I talk about a lot and uh it's another one of those encounters between Jesus and the Pharisees uh just kind of recap um, what's been going on here since Jesus came into Jerusalem he goes into the temple he upturns the tables of the money changers and the, uh, uh, the people who are selling the animals for sacrifices he chases them out because of their hindrance to worship and then he leaves town he goes to uh, Bethany he stays overnight in Bethany he comes back the next morning and he curses the fig tree which we saw was an object lesson dealing with the hypocrisy in Jerusalem. He comes back to the temple and now he's sitting in the temple courtyard and he's teaching and he's healing people and he's doing stuff and the chief priests and the elders come and they start asking him questions where's your authority come from and basically he refuses to answer them because they wouldn't pay attention anyways. Um this is this is kind of like uh when Jesus in uh, Luke's Gospel gives the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, uh, the rich man he's he's super wealthy, but he's kind of a jerk, right? And Lazarus is the the beggar who sits outside his gate, and he's covered with sores and 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 you know, we Americans we have this corrupt idea when it says that the dogs came and licked his wounds. You know, as, as Americans who have dogs for pets, we think, oh, isn't that sweet? The dogs are no; these were feral dogs. They were waiting for him to die, right? And, and they were they were really you know licking up the scent of blood is what they were doing, and uh Jesus is telling this as a parable. This isn't a real story so when when both of the men die, Lazarus is taken into that place of rest. Remember we talked about the difference between the Jewish understanding of death and then the Greek influence on that, where they started understanding that there was a place of rest for those who had already gone through enough, and that was called Abraham's bosom. And then there was a place of torment for those who were jerks, like the rich man. And the rich man asked Lazarus, can you drip a little water on my tongue because it's hot down here? And Lazarus said, or rather Jesus said, no, that, that's not how this works. Nobody can cross that chasm. And then the rich man said, well, can you at least send Lazarus back? Why? To tell my brothers so they don't wind up here because they're jerks too, Right? And Jesus' response there was they had the law, they had the prophets. If they wouldn't believe them, they won't believe somebody who comes back from the dead. This is quite honestly the problem I have with a lot of these uh, 60 minutes in heaven or 30 minutes in heaven or whatever they are. Uh, heaven is for real and that kind of book. Because quite honestly, if it takes somebody coming back from heaven to tell you that heaven's real, yeah, right, it You got the scriptures. That should be adequate for your faith. Um, So Jesus tells the the chief priests, if I told you where my authority came from, you wouldn't believe me anyways. Because they didn't believe John. Because his authority came from the same place. So then we had the Pharisees who came up and asked Jesus if it was lawful to pay the, the tax to the Romans. If it was in accordance with the law of Moses. If it was lawful, not legal. And Jesus said, yeah, it's lawful to render the proper respect to the authorities who are placed over you. Give Caesar back what is his. But then he says, then give God back what is his. So if Caesar's image is on the coin, where's God's image? You're looking at it. So that means that, yeah, pay pay Caesar his tax, but give, give God everything else. And then the Sadducees, this is what we looked at a couple of weeks ago, the Sadducees came, and they tried to, to pinch him on this whole issue of the resurrection. So you have a man married to a woman, and he dies without giving her any children. So she marries his brother, because that's the, the law of Moses. And this goes on seven times, and then she dies from exhaustion, right? She dies, and then in the resurrection, whose wife will she be? Of course, they didn't believe in the resurrection, so it was kind of a, a, a false argument anyways. And Jesus says, you guys don't know God. You don't know his power. You don't know his word. You're just a bunch of knuckleheads. Right? So right on the heels of this, we hit chapter 22, verse 34. And the the Pharisees, (coughs) they're not allies with the Sadducees. In fact, at this point, they're probably happy to hear that Jesus shut down the Sadducees. Because the biggest point of contention between the Pharisees and the Sadducees was the idea of the authority of God's Word. The Pharisees, remember, they started as the rabbis and the teachers and the sages in the synagogues. They were the people who taught God's Word. They knew God's Word, they knew the miracles in God's Word. The Sadducees said, The first five books, that's it. There is no afterlife, there is no resurrection. Once you're dead, you're worm food. Period. That's it. So, when the Pharisees hear that Jesus shut down the Sadducees, they were probably okay. But they're still opposed to Jesus because he's chipping away at their authority, which is the, the Talmud, the oral tradition, that was the explanation of what God's word had to say. So let, let me read our scripture. I'm not going to make y'all stand up today. Because I know how much that standing and sitting thing hurts. So I'm going to read here our, our passage for today. Um, when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question. To test him. Teacher... Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. So Jesus, he, he's like setting himself up for every one of these traps that the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests and the elders can throw at him. He's putting himself in the position to answer these questions to prove that their thinking is bad. Um, The the oral tradition, the Talmud, just for a a second here, I want to talk about this. If somebody came to the rabbis in the synagogue to ask... What does this part of the law mean? Now, if you think about the the commands in the law, and how many commandments are there in Scripture? Okay. Right. When we hear the word commandment, we think the Ten Commandments. In Jewish tradition, specifically in the rabbinic tradition, there are six hundred and thirteen commands in the Old Testament, okay? So there's a lot of stuff that God tells us either positively do this or negatively don't do this, right? So there's a lot of stuff. And some of it, let's be honest, some of it really doesn't make sense to us as people. Now part of that is because we're 21st century Americans, we're not 1st century Jews. Or or even 2nd or 3rd millennium B.C. Jews who first heard the law. Um, some of them we can understand, the Ten Commandments, they're pretty easy. Because we've grown up hearing them, we understand you will have no other gods, don't use God's name as a common word, don't make any graven images to worship as God, keep the sabbath holy honor your parents don't murder so on and so forth those are pretty easy right um, don't boil a kid baby goat in its mother's milk me this okay right I right which uh, a cream soup with red meat? No, that doesn't even sound good, right? I have a hard time with cream soup like corn or uh, clam chowder, right? Uh, yeah, right? But that one doesn't make a lot of sense. Don't wear clothing that is made of two different fabrics. Why? Well, there's there's a whole lot of thinking on this and it comes from the idea of the Talmud with, with the clothing, right? Why would God tell us not to wear clothing made of two different fabrics? Well, there you go. That's exactly it. If you have a tunic that is made of one part cotton and one part wool, right? You wash it the wool and the cotton are going to pull against each other, which could wind up causing holes in the fabric, which could wind up exposing things that shouldn't be exposed. So it is widely understood that this is a modesty law. There are others who say that it's an example that you don't mix two unlike items together because a lot of God's law has to do with the spiritual purity of Israel. So you don't mix Canaanite religion with Jewish religion. When Joshua was instructed to take the people into Israel, he was told to drive out or eliminate certain people groups. Specifically, he was told don't make a treaty with them. Don't keep them as your servants or slaves, but eradicate them, get them out of the land. And what was the first thing he did when he got to Jerusalem? He made a treaty because the people said, well, hey, we got free labor here, right? And then we have the book of Judges where you have all this syncretism and people abandon God and then they come back to God and back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. So when people would go to the Pharisees or to the, the rabbis to have the law explained, <coughs> this is where the Talmud came from God gives this wonderful fourth commandment remember the Sabbath and keep it holy and then later on in the book of Leviticus the book of Deuteronomy, the book of Numbers even it discusses what is and what isn't work for the Sabbath right So, and, and we've talked about this women weren't allowed to comb the hair on the Sabbath why No, it had nothing to do with expending energy. According to the rabbis, according to the tradition of the Talmud, because if a woman was combing her hair and she happened to catch a gray one in the mirror, she would then be tempted to pluck it, which would count as harvesting. (laughs) I'm not making this up. That's Jewish tradition. This is what the the Talmud is. Is it work to walk on the Sabbath? Only if it's over a certain distance, so you can walk up to one mile from your home without it counting as work. But I'll tell you what: when when we docked in Ketchikan, we went for a walk that was less than one mile from the boat, and it was work because it was up the side of a mountain like this. It was even more work walking back down because the grates were or the steps were steel grates, and it was rainy and they were slippery, and it was yeah never seen my life flash before my eyes so many times so these these pharisees who came and asked jesus this question they were the kind of people who would come together and debate the finer points of the law what does this mean they would ask the philosophical questions how many angels can dance on the head of a pin you ever heard of that question right is that an important question yes actually it's a very important theological question because it goes to the nature of angels. Are they a physical being or are they a spiritual being? Because if they are a physical being, then they take up space. And then there is a limitation on the number who can fit on the head of a pin. But if they are a spiritual being, spiritual beings don't take up space. Spiritual beings, an infinite number can fit on the head of a pin because they don't take up space. That's actually an important philosophical question that deals with our theology. And that's the kind of stuff, right? Now, most people don't think like this. Remember, I have a master's degree in theology. I'm not most people. I think about all kinds of weird stuff. So, these are the folks who would come together and draw this kind of discussion together. You know, hey, we just had a person come in and they asked the question about this. What does y'all read on the law? What do you think? 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 And they came together and really they were building the the Talmud as a commentary on the Old Testament. Just like you can go to Lifeway and buy commentaries on, on books of the New Testament and the Old Testament today. This kind of mindset would draw people who were interested in debate. Specifically forensic debate. Not like forensic science but forensic debate dealing with evidence like lawyers. And so this Pharisee who happened to be a lawyer, comes to Jesus and he asks one of these philosophical questions. Now, it is assumed, I have always assumed, that like all the other questions that the Pharisee was asking of Jesus, this one was designed to expose a weakness in Jesus' thinking. If they could show that Jesus favored one part of God's word over another, right? so if there was one part he said was more important, then by extension, that means the rest of it is less important. Right? So if they could show that Jesus favored one part over anything else, then they might be able to expose that and turn the people against him. Now, as I'm studying and as I'm preparing for this morning, it dawned on me, it's possible they weren't testing Jesus at this point. It's possible. Because... They were the people who would ask this kind of question. Now, it's it's natural for us. Somebody says, Which is the greatest commandment in the law? Right? What's what's your favorite book in scripture? Hmm? Psalms. You don't have a favorite? Okay. Romans? Okay. Alright. Do you have a favorite verse? A lot of people have a favorite verse. Okay. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and 10. Mm-hmm. Okay. Right? A lot of people, John 3, 16. A lot of people, 1 Corinthians 13. Right? The, the love chapter. Right? Um, uh, a lot of people like Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is really good. Right? But by extension, if I have a favorite... What does that mean about the rest? They're not as favorite. And let's be honest. Are there passages in Scripture that you have read and said to yourself, boy, I really wish God hadn't said that. I, let, let, it, we've got a little bit of time here. Let me, let, me, let me give you, you know, there's love your enemies. Okay. Not really fond of that one but probably the verse that the first verse that ever like hit me with that gut punch right was Ephesians 5 starting verse 22 husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church because i had been studying on what that meant and all of a sudden i read this verse and i'm like well come on now nobody can do that Well, that's the point, right? There are times where I don't want to love my wife sacrificially. I want to be selfish. there's, There's verses in Scripture we don't like. And it's possible, it's just possible, that this lawyer really wasn't trying to pin Jesus, but rather he was just asking a philosophical question. In your opinion, Rabbi, what's the most important commandment? Just like he would ask any of his other Pharisees. So I don't, I don't know. We always assume the Pharisees are the bad guys, therefore they, were, had, they had nefarious purposes, right? So he asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment? Now, if he was only talking about the Ten Commandments, be pretty easy, right? But there are 613 commandments in the Torah. Um, I'm pretty sure that's the number that was in mind when the question was asked. These include the command uh, all the way back in the book of Genesis, right? When Adam was created. Come on. Nine o'clock this morning. (laughs) When, When Adam was created and he was placed in the garden, what did God tell him to do? Nope. Before that, tend the garden and keep it, right? Work was given before the fall. The work is not a result of the curse. Toil is a result of the curse. When Eve was created, right, and and Adam and Eve were brought together, God gave them a command, be fruitful and multiply. When Noah and his children got off the ark, right, his children, his his daughter-in-laws and his wife, God told them, be fruitful and multiply. So there's all of these, these are the commands, that the Pharisees have in mind when they ask the question, what's the greatest? What part of God's word is the most important? Well, there you go. That's Jesus' answer. There's there's a lot of ways we could answer that question. Um, like I said, we all have our favorite chapters, our favorite verses, our favorite passages. We all have our unfavorites, Right? Love your neighbor. My neighbor's an idiot. you got to love him anyways. Man. Right? And then, Jesus, who's your neighbor? Yes. Well, okay. That makes it easy. Um, there are other, there are some passages that weigh more heavily on our heart than others. Right? You may not be a person who struggles against, um, Let me me pick something here. You may not be a person who has a problem struggling with uh, the lust of the eyes, right? You may not have a problem looking at somebody and lusting after them. So the command against that is one of those, okay, right? You may not have a problem with substance use, right? The the commands against being drunk may not be a temptation for you. So the, the scripture that says, Don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Piece of cake. Right? No problem. Where on the other hand, you may be a glutton. And so the fruit of the Spirit being self control that one weighs a little bit heavier on us. Right? So these are the different aspects of the question, what is the greatest? And if they were being Nefarious. if they were being in that, that position where they were trying to trap Jesus, it could be that they were trying to get Jesus to say that, let's say, the first commandment, you will have no other gods before me, is the most important. They could then say that Jesus said the command against adultery was less important. Now that's that's a my particular take on this may be too influenced by American politics because that's what this sounds like is a political debate, right? But it may be that that's what they were trying to do. That wouldn't be the case, and under scrutiny, it wouldn't hold up. They weren't concerned with scrutiny. If they went before the people and said, "Jesus Himself said," That the only command that is the most important is to have no other gods before Yahweh. The people would say, all right, that's great. But if they stood up and they said, Jesus said it's not important to not commit adultery, the people would turn on him in a heartbeat. Because we react with emotion. We react without reason. We react with a mob mentality. Look at the way the people turned on Paul when he went back to Jerusalem, right? And and he was seen in the company of Greeks. And then he was seen coming out of the temple on his own. And all of a sudden, somebody started to cry, see, he's bringing Gentiles into the temple. And all of a sudden, man, it was game on. Paul was in season and they were going to kill him. See, we don't react with reason. We don't react with thought. We don't react without emotion. We need to. We ought to think our way through things. So that's probably the first lesson we need to learn from Scripture is when we hear something, when we read something, when we are introduced to a thought or an idea, we need to relax our reflexes. We need to put our reflexes in neutral and we need to engage our thought processes. We need to engage some critical thinking skills and react in a more reasoned way. Now it could turn out that our reflexes are okay because that's why God gave us reflexes, right? If you stick your finger in a pot of boiling water accidentally, right, your reflex is what tells you, to pull that back out, that's hot, right? Right? Sometimes our reflexes are good, but when our reflexes are influenced by emotion and we check our thought processes at the door, then we get into trouble. If you don't believe me, log into Facebook for about a half an hour. That's that's all it takes. Read the comments section on Fox News for about a half an hour. You will weep for humanity. Because all we do is react with those reflexes. So that's what the Pharisees may have been counting on. was if they could get Jesus to be portrayed as saying, this command is not important, then the people would react and he would be out of their hair. But it's Jesus. So when they ask the question, Which command is the greatest? His answer is yes. (laughs) (coughs) We were watching a show on Netflix last night. Just kind of sitting back and trying not to hack along up. And uh, two characters on the show. This guy turns to the the lady standing next to him. And he asks her a question. And it was a question about... um, she was uh, Iranian, I believe. She was from the Middle East, so she wore the, the the headscarf, the hijab. And in one scene, it's pinned on the right-hand side. And in the next scene, it's pinned on the left-hand side. So the character asks her, is there a spiritual significance, or is it just a personal preference thing? Or is it just depending on which hand you use, because he happened to notice that she was ambidextrous? Right, so he answers this question: Is it a personal thing? Is it a spiritual thing? Does it just depend on which hand you use? And she turns and she looks at him and she says, "Yes." And then she falls back in line, right? And and my brain is not running at a hundred percent capacity, so I heard yes, and I went, "Wait, that wasn't a yes or no." Stop. That's how the Pharisees responded when Jesus answered this question, because he answered with, "Yes." Which is the greatest commandment? Yes. Okay, we all know the words of his response, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Did I miss anything? Depends on whether you're reading from Matthew or reading from Mark. Because Mark includes the phrase, and with all your strength. If you go back to Deuteronomy chapter 6, it also includes with all your strength. The Shema. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. Did Moses miss one? The idea here is you love God with everything. Every aspect of your being. Right? This, the Shema is one of the most important call to worship commands in fact it was the call to worship used in the temple every time they had a public reading of scripture in the synagogues that was the start hero israel the lord our god the lord is one you shall love the lord your god with everything you got so for jesus to answer the pharisees with that There's an emphasis there. You could say that this is the foundation upon which all of the other commands rest because here, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, that establishes. Who makes the rules? God does. Which God? The God. There's one. See, the the rest of the world at the time, the rest of uh, Southwest Asia, Eastern Asia, uh, even Europe, for the most part, at that point, the gods were confined to geographic areas. You know, like the god of the Philistines was the god Dagon. Uh, he was a fishing god. He he was over the 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 seas. He was the god of the storms. And then the Canaanites, they were farmers, so they had Baal, who was the god of the rain. Right. Well that was Molech. Molech was the, the god of child sacrifice. Um that's the, they would they pass their children through fire to to please him. Um you had Asherah, who was the goddess of fertility. Fertility. Fertility Yeah, that's anyways. Um but the Shema tells Israel there's one. That's it. The Lord, our God, is one God, solo, alone. He's the only God. All of the commands spring from that idea. Now, if we take the, the the four parts of that phrase, love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, I'm going to use all four of them, right? If we look at what each one of them was, what each one of those ideas meant to The Pharisee who asked the question. Because that's who Jesus was talking to. Right? That's who Matthew was writing to. He was writing to a first century Jewish audience. God's preserved it for us. But to me, those words mean something different than they meant back then. When you look at a person, um, we can easily understand what it means to love God with our strength. Right? Right? That's our physical being. That's our ability to influence the world around us. That's what we do with our hands and our feet, our motions, our actions. Loving God with our mind, probably a little bit harder to understand. I mean, we don't even know what the mind really encompasses. It's easy for us to think mind equals brain, but there's more to it than that. Right? It has to do with our thoughts. Uh, Philippians four eight, Paul reminds the Philippian church at the end of his letter, right? And remember, he's writing to the Philippians in jail, about to die. That's where Paul is. And Philippians four eight, he says, "Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, anything worthy of praise, think about these things." What did he just describe? God. He just described God. If there is anything, uh, whatever is true, what is true in this world? God is the, yeah, God is the only truth. What is honorable in this world? God. What is just? God. What is pure? God. What is lovely? God. Whatever is commendable? God. Right? I mean, he just encompassed, that's what, jesus is talking about when he says love god with all of your mind all of your thoughts should honor god that doesn't mean that the only thing that we actively mentally engage in is focused thought on god that would be a very bad thing when you're driving down the highway please don't do that especially if you're driving near me because i want you to be focused on the road so you aren't killing people Especially me. No, I didn't. It's this head cold. I'm not consciously thinking about driving. Right now, breathing is something that I have to consciously think about. So, this this idea is that our idle thoughts, when we're not actively engaged in something, Larry, when you're welding, you better be, engaged with welding but while you're welding you're welding to god's glory so even those active thoughts you're doing it for god's sake the way i'm driving i need to be doing it for god's sake for his glory right everything that we do needs to be pointed towards god's glory loving god with our soul well, that's easy. Not. What? Yeah, exactly. What does that mean? How do I direct my soul? What even? What's the difference between soul and spirit? Is there a difference between soul and spirit? You talk to a hundred different theologians, you're going to get a hundred different answers. To the first century Jew who heard this, we're talking about the spiritual component of our love for God. The spiritual component is what gives us life. Think back to the book of Genesis, right? The creation account of man. God reaches down and he scoops together a pile of dirt and he makes it in the shape of a man and then God breathes into him and man becomes a living soul that's the word that's used that's our life that is the very essence of what sets us apart from the rest of the world is the fact that god breathed into us a living soul so jesus says love god with all of it so just in case You're not understanding what it means to love God with your physical ability. You're not understanding what it means to love God with your mental ability. Jesus says, love Him with your life. But there's one more. And it's actually the first term in the phrase. Let me read it again. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength love God with all your heart what's that mean what does it mean to love God with all your heart what do we think of when we think of loving God with our heart love right? it's an emotional thing right Well, that's an American construct. That is a purely Western construct. In our understanding, the heart is the seat of emotion. Right? What do we draw on Valentine cards? Hearts, right? It represents love. That's our emotional seat. That was not the case for the Jew. The heart is the center of their Volition. Their will. The place that choices come from. The command means we love God on purpose. I spend a lot of time talking about not living on autopilot. This is what Jesus is saying. Love God with all of your heart. Every choice you make every that's right every choice you make make it to love god make it to show him remember that word love is a verb it's an action it's not an emotion it's not a it's not a noun he doesn't say feel good about god he says love god seek to do god's best To do the best for him. No matter your personal cost. Why? Because God's got us anyways. He's in control. He's going to take care of us. So don't worry about what's going to happen to you. Now that doesn't mean be foolhardy. Because we're supposed to use our mind. Right? We're supposed to think. We're supposed to use our actions. But we're not supposed to be concerned with the consequences. What might happen to me if I love God with my choices? That means my choices need to honor God. When you put all these together, love God on purpose with your life, with your thoughts, and with your actions takes on a little different flavor than love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It really does mean love God with every aspect of who you are. Everything that you are, everything that you do, everything that you think, every choice that you make, love God. Without that, you cannot fulfill any other command. You can't. Then Jesus goes a step further. He says the second command is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus isn't making this up. This is out of the book of Leviticus, chapter 19. How do we love ourselves? Okay. Um, Let's see. Short of a specific occasion of fasting, right? If you've ever chosen to do a fast or if a doctor has ever put you on a fast, right? When have you ever chosen to skip eating? Now, you may choose to work through a lunch break, right? Those are rare. And you probably have snacks at your desk, <laughs> right? We don't do that, okay? So now things are going to be a little uncomfortable. Short of the conscious choice in an intimate setting with a spouse or while attending to personal hygiene, when do you permit yourself to go unclothed? Yeah, I have too much respect for the human race. (laughs) Right? Other than those periods where it may not be possible, right, you're required to work outdoors, when do you choose to go without shelter against the cold and the heat and the wind and the rain and the snow? We don't. We live in Mississippi. When do you choose to go without air conditioning? As little as humanly possible. <laughs> right. Yeah. I, I get into a car with somebody who does the the, the the 440 air conditioning going down pass road, and I'm dying. I'm like, do eh, you mind if I take my shirt off? All right, That's why I choose to go unclothed. Outside of some really weird thoughts that we might have on stoicism or masochism, human nature is automatically inclined to make sure our needs are met. Food, water, clothing, and shelter. We are automatically inclined that way. We will do whatever it takes. If it's raining, generally speaking, we will do whatever it takes to get out of the rain. If possible. If it's cold, we will seek heat. If it's hot, we will seek cold. Jesus says the second commandment, which is like the command of loving God with all of our being, is to meet the needs of our neighbor the same way we would meet our own. Wrap your head around that for a second. It's not just have good feelings about your neighbor. It's not just think warm thoughts about your neighbor. In fact, Jesus' half-brother James answers this very well when he says, your neighbor shows up at your door in the middle of the night, he knocks on the door, you open it up, and he says, I'm naked and I'm hungry. What good does it do him to say, well, I'll pray for you, be warm and well-fed, and then shut the door in his face? None. Zero. That's not love. When you have the ability, you do for them. On these two commands are the entirety of Scripture. Now, if we simplify things and we just pull back to the Ten Commandments, right? we can separate them into the first four and the second six. The first four commandments. No other gods, no graven images to represent God, honor His name, and observe the Sabbath. All four of those are just like the four aspects, Jesus said, of loving God with all of our being. Right? The last six commands, honor your parents, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't testify falsely against your neighbor, don't covet. These are a summary of love your neighbor as yourself. Right? Or, Or the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Do you know every religion in the world has a version of the golden rule? but ours is the only one that is stated the way that it is? Every other religion has a golden rule that says don't do anything to anybody else that you wouldn't want done to you. So if you don't want them to punch you in the nose, don't punch them in the nose. The golden rule in Christianity, do unto others, is the only active command do for them what you would like them to do for you not don't do things that you don't want done do things that you want done we could go through the other 603 commands in the old testament and we could do the same exercise we could look at the the commands to tend the garden and keep it why because god said so Love God with all that you do. We could look at the command for don't wear clothing of two different fabrics. Why? Well, number one, God said so, right? And number two, love your neighbor. I don't want any parts of me exposed and force somebody to have to deal with that, right? So there's, there's reasons. There's a way that all of the commands in Scripture fit those two commands. So, on one hand, if the the Pharisees came together and they decided to ask Jesus this question to trap him, he escaped their trap. What command is the most important? Yes. On the other hand, if this Pharisee was really coming to Jesus with a curiosity of which command you consider to be the pinnacle of the commands. Jesus gave him a whole lot to think about. Because to the Pharisees, there were some commands that were more important than others. To the Pharisees, there were some commands that were so important that they built large perimeter fences to keep people away from them. And of course, some of the Pharisees would just jump over that fence and walk their toes right up to it. Because they could. but the the point of this question here, what part of Scripture is the most important? all of it, every last bit of it, even the parts that are hard for us to understand, even the parts that we would rather God had not put in there, and we've got to be honest with ourselves there are those uh, there are those parts that we wish God didn't put in there, right? First time I heard somebody preach through the book of James, like, okay, I'm done. I don't want to read that book again. James doesn't pull any punches. Why do you quarrel and fight with your spouse? You know what the most common answer is? Well, because they just won't. You know what James' answer is? Because you got a hard heart. Man. That's James' answer. We quarrel and fight with each other because of our sin. Not because of theirs. Mm. Yeah, I'll just... I'll join with Lutheran and say that's just... A, that's an epistle made of straw. We'll just stay away from that letter. But all of it. Paul wrote to Timothy. He said all scripture is what? God breathed. God breathed breathe it's God's word it's all critical for us to learn it's all critical for us to know one more reason why we've got to stay in the word